Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. It's Black History Month, and the crew's all together for a group panel discussion about Black Greek letter organizations and its rich history in Philadelphia. There's a lot of history surrounding fraternities and sororities in Philadelphia, and so we're happy that so many members call in. Our newsmaker this week heads up the Greater Philadelphia chapter of Tuskegee Airmen, Inc. Hear about the plight of some of the most talented aviators and how an experiment to prove they couldn't proved that they could. Our changemaker of the week is an award-winning author, filmmaker, and educator in Philadelphia. She became the first black woman to win an Eisner Award. Antoinette Lee chats with Dr. Sheena Howard. All of that is straight ahead on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Well, Black History Month is in full swing, so we wanted to make sure we all came together for this episode to have a group discussion together. I'm Raquel Williams, along with my co-hosts. I'm Antoinette Lee. Happy Black History Month, y'all. Sharaday Howard, let's get it going. All right, and we will be getting it going. Hey, it's nice to be together again, ladies. We are discussing the Divine Nine Historically Black Greek Letter Sororities and Fraternities when they started and why they are still significant today. So I'll just start out by going over the founding members of the National Panhellenic Council, which were Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. Now, the council's membership expanded as Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated joined in in 1931, along with Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated the same year, and Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated uh, joined in on 1937, along with Iota Phi Theta Fraternity, Incorporated in 1996. They joined the Coalition of Black Greek Letter Organizations. And that history is deep, and that history is rich. And, of course, we will start off by saying, full disclosure, that two of us are members of uh, Black Greek Letter Sororities. I am a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And I am a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> and I love them both. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. And we're going to talk about our experiences and the reasons why we chose to do this. But I'll start off by giving you uh, a little something that I found on NAACP's website so that it is... Um, something that's across the board and, and doesn't talk about any particular organization, but it gives you a little bit of uh, insight as to why black Greek letter organizations. I mean, there was Greek life on campus. Why did you have to create a black Greek life organizations? Well, it came into fruition in the early 20th century due to the trials and the tribulations that many black people were facing within the U.S. at the time. Uh, the inclusion of African-Americans in universities proved to be trying times, as you know, for black students in the early 1900s. So we're often ostracized and banned from joining many social organizations. So black students began searching for ways to cope. So the organizations, some of which are over 100 years old, well over 100 years old, uh, have contributed to lots of hours of service, scholarships, leadership to communities all around the world. Uh, we differ in the founding principles in one way or another, but all come together as a unified body to create social change and 
leave the world as a better place. I think that pretty much sums up the divine nine. Wow. Strength and community. Absolutely. I attended Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey, and I pledged in the spring of 1990. And it was four of us. I started my whole mission with community service in high school. I had the honor of serving as president of the youth chapter of the Urban League of Bergen County. So that was my first intro foray into community service. So you were always a leader. This is just in your blood. I I guess community service Mm -hmm. um, in some way, shape, or form is in there. And so I had just happened to be attracted to the women of Delta Sigma Theta sorority. At that particular time, I was close with someone who was in the sorority, got to know them, watched what they were doing in campus, and I was just drawn. And that was my personal experience. And so I think that's important to, to point out, Raquel, right, the importance of community service, right, because that is at the essence of Black Greek organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, once we get older, people might say, well, what's the big deal? Why are you still into this sorority thing? Right. Right. But, you know, a lot of people don't get that this is a lifelong commitment to most importantly, service, sisterhood and, and community. So it's a really big deal. And it's not just something that that stops when you're in undergrad or, you know, you do it a couple of years and you're done. This is a lifelong commitment that should potentially last you until you leave this earth, really. I think the average person, when they hear sorority or fraternity, they think party, 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 college, 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 and that's it. And then when you leave college, the partying is over and that that's what it was about. But that's in, in the case of the Divine Nine, that's not what it's about. And, you know, once you're in, you're in. I mean, you can be active and inactive and, you know, you know, be back and forth. But um, I know for me, after a while, after I graduated and started getting involved in radio, I was all over the place. And it was just a little crazy. But you always had that base. So you can always come back, you know, get active again and give back. So uh, I, I always appreciated having that. Like, no matter what, you're always in, whether you're you know, you're, you got your family going on, you have a lot of work issues or, you know, you have more free time and you can and get back involved with a chapter and, and give of your time. I think that's awesome. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm one of those people who thought that school before I knew the both of you mm-hmm. and before I knew a few other people in my life as I got older and watched how the connection was unconditional to right. their sisters right. and unconditional love. Sometimes you don't get it from your family. Sometimes you don't get it from other places. That's true. And this happened to be a place in which I've watched some of uh, the women in my life really gravitate. And not only did it teach them to be a little bit more spiritual, a little mm-hmm. bit more community-centered, mm-hmm. but it gave them the sense of real self when it came to being a woman, a woman in a competitive world uh, corporate-wise, right. across the spectrum. I mean, even agriculture. Right. Everything. everything. <laughs> it touches everything. Yeah. And I didn't recognize that this was a lifelong, not a lifelong sentence, but a lifelong uh, gift yes. of community. Yeah. You said something really important there about, um, you know, finding a, a space uh, in corporate, right? Like, mm-hmm. so in our jobs, we may not always have a space as black people where we can identify, where we can uh, relate to others, right? But there are bound to be some black professionals in your sorority who have gone through this experience, right. who maybe can mentor you, who can help you feel like you identify. Right. A belonging. That mentorship is important and and it's helpful. And I, I think it's helpful and important, you know, no matter what organization that you're in. Uh, you know, some people think that there's this infighting, well, she's a part of this organization, so I'm not going to help her. Or she's part of that. That Listen, we're grown women of color first and we support hey. each other that right. way first. At the end of the day. It's all Listen, in good favor. Kamala Harris <laughs> exactly. vice president. Hey. Kamala we Harris is like, an AAA for those who yes. don't know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like pinking, everybody was pink and green for a minute. Like, uh, we were like, okay, on, this all. is awesome. Yes. Because, you know, that's just a sisterhood. We right. just felt that. We just supported, hey, she, one of us, one of the divine nine. She's wow. there. And I saw it. You see it on everything. And I think people that aren't a part of it, really, I mean, I don't have regrets in life, none. But the one thing, if I was going to have it, I wish now that maybe I joined a sorority. It is not too late. It's never too late. Right. There are grad chapters. And actually, mm-hmm. uh, for Black Greek life, I think um, graduate chapters are the most active. Yes. And they make up about 70% of the collection of, of brothers and sisters. So. Uh, it's never too late. Find a, find a grad chapter near you if this is something you're 
interested in and, and do your research. And so this is Black History Month, right? Mm-hmm. And and pe- some people might not be exactly able to make the connection between Black history and Greek life. But there are a lot of civil rights leaders who are uh, in Greek life. Yeah. And I just want to point out one, a couple of people I know. Raquel, you might have some deltas, but I, I, I know AKA, so I'm going to speak on AKA. Um, <laughs> Nellie Quander, she is a, a founder of AKA. She was a Washington, D.C. educator. She wrote a letter to the 1913 Women's Suffrage March organizers demanding equal treatment for black women. As a result of this, women of AKA marched in the historic event as individuals supporting the movement. That's Nellie Quander, y'all. Wow. <laughs> That's just one Power. story. There's plenty. Maya Angelou, she was one of the greatest poets of our time. My favorite author, Toni Morrison. Wow. Who Love you Tony. got, Raquel? On the side of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, there are many notable Deltas as well. You're probably familiar with Nikki Giovanni. Uh, you may also be familiar with Marsha Fudge, along with April Ryan, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Aretha Franklin. Stop it. Legends. Black excellence here. Andra Day. (laughs) Cecily Tyson. I mean, we can go on and on. And, you know, there are notable men and women uh, that are part of the Divine Nine. We could be here listing them all. And um, but there, there are lots of them. And one of them that we work with, Jay Scott Smith. Jay Jay Scott Smith is a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. Founded on January 9th, 1914 at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Good to good to be here. Okay, he's giving us some history. He's giving us a little bit of something, didn't he? He rolls deep. He rolls deep. The things I went through, yes, I have to actually make sure I, I'm going to remember all that. So it's, it kind of pops into my head. It's just a natural thing. Well, let's start there. Charles, yeah, Charles. absolutely. I mean, we were talking about when we, when, uh, <clears throat> when we were pledging... Um, I pledged Spring 90 in Fairleigh Dickinson University. Um, Antoinette, you pledged... um, Alpha Kappa Alpha, a sorority incorporated. (laughs) 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 Flow so easy. Mine was... And and I actually came through... Initially, I was going to go through Michigan State University, my alma mater. Some things happened and ended up having to cross grad chapter 2009 when I was at Wayne State University in Detroit at New Alpha Sigma chapter Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. God, but you had your eye on Phi Beta Sigma a long time before that. I had an yeah. older cousin who crossed Sigma at Ferris State University in Michigan. And the first time I saw him, I'm 12 years old and he pulls up in the full Sigma gear. And I thought, that's different. Because I come from a Greek family. My mother is also, she's a member of Delta Sigma Theta. She's a lovely woman. She's a lovely woman. Anyway, she crossed. (laughs) The fun thing is she crossed in spring of 1966. Okay. Oh, I need to hear her story. Spring 66. She was was the ace in a line of 40 women. Wow. At what was at the time Tennessee A&I, now Tennessee State University. Alpha, Alpha Chi chapter. She tells me just the whole thing to this day. She still wears, she still has a Delta charm that she's worn the mm-hmm. whole time. She can still name all 39 in order behind her. It's like, it, it's a, it's stunning to really kind of think about that. So Greek life was always kind of there. I just, for me, I was drawn more toward Phi Beta Sigma because it was different. Plus just with my cousin and I got to know a lot of hit, a lot of his bros, when they came through, and they, and they always would call me young fella because I, I, if you think I look young now, imagine what I looked like when I was 12 years old. But, and they would always come through, and it was just something different about them. I, I was around all kinds of Greeks, right. but it was, the, it was really the Sigma fam that kind of jumped out. Wow. Yeah, it's always something, you just, something resonates with you with a particular group. It's just something that draws you. It's hard to really describe why. It was, why not this one? Why not that one? Because I was drawn to this one. That's. It's pretty much what it. You read my mind. Yeah, that was yeah. my question. I was like, you said it was. They were different. Yeah. In what way were they different? It's like anybody could be a sigma. Where there was this weird type, and it's it's an odd thing. There's an odd type where each member of an organization gets kind of cast as something. Mm-hmm. The sigmas kind of don't fall into that. We are a little bit of everywhere. We have we we've got we've got the rough and tumble brothers. A lot of them are in the south. We got the more distinguished kind of qu- more quiet dudes, nerdy cats like me were, were more along that line. <laughs> I, I always love the fact that my fraternity, two of our most high-profile members are John Lewis and Huey P. Newton. Wow, what a there spread. There we go. Yeah. What a spread. We've been talking hitters. about prominent <laughs> members of black Greek organizations and the roles that they played in civil rights. And it's, it's, a, it's a key part of it. 
it's a massive part of it. When you look at some of the historic pictures of the civil rights movement, almost all of those brothers and sisters were part of an organization. Right. MLK was an alpha. Mm-hmm. John Lewis mm-hmm. is Sigma. Right. Got a number of the Jesse Jackson to Q. Wow. Right. They're up and down the line. There's a number of noops in there. There's obviously on the on there's there's AKAs and there's deltas right. and there's there's SG rows. It's like there's we we're so deep in this culture. Mm-hmm. And just when I think about Brother Newton and Brother Lewis, I didn't get to meet Huey. I got to meet John Lewis ten years ago in Detroit. I have I still have that picture. Mm-hmm. And I can't lie. Like I don't take many pictures with people when I do stories. It's just not my thing. It's like I'll I'll say what up to him. I'll talk to him, whatever. But I made it a point to go out of my way to get a picture with Brother Lewis, and he gave me the he gives me the frat handshake. He did. He just like that was one of those things for me. It's the connection to our history, absolutely. And I even speaking to when I taught at Lincoln University, and I ran into a lot of the young Greeks out there, especially the young Sigmas. That is a thing that we stick together. I had the story of a young man who was in one of my classes, and I could tell he wasn't right. Like there was something going on with him. Hmm. And first day he sees me, he immediately introduces himself because he showed up in the letters and is like, I mean, introduced myself and everything. And I knew he hadn't been in my class in a couple of weeks. And he shows up and I stop him after class. It's like, I just need to talk to you for a second. And I just broke it down to him. It's like, look, I know how good you are because I, I see you come in here every day. I don't know what's happening with you, but I need you to be more focused because hmm. and I, I pulled the older brother rank on him. It's like, right. I don't we don't have people in these letters not showing up and getting the job done. He didn't miss another class after that. Wow. His grades turned completely around. And I but I knew he was that good. We were talking about that mentorship, mentorship, right? You you kind of fit right into that. I just see that as it's a connective thing. There's a lot of things about Greek life that people don't get. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of misconceptions about it. There's plenty of foolishness. Every once in a while, someone goes out of the side of their neck and says something about, oh, you're paying for friends or, oh, it's like, it's like, like, no, bro, this, there's big difference here. They don't get it. It's bigger than that. It's Mm -hmm. way bigger than that. It's a, there's a bond there and we don't even have to be a part of the same org. The thing about being in a black Greek organization is you see, that there's also, and we talked about it the other day on the John cast when J- Justin Udo was on, is that black people are not a monolith. Mm. But at the same time, we still are family. There are things about, there's always this misconception about, about black Greek organizations. Sure. And yes, there are issues and there are things that we do address and we need to get better at. We need to address a lot of a lot of things. There was a longstanding issue with homophobia that floats in some of our organizations. that we Colorism. Get, colorism. Colorism. Isn't it? The colorism yeah, the paperback. There's too much history here. The, the hazing. We want to get to the point where we say we're a non-hazing organization, that it's not done tongue-in-cheek. Right. Oh. That it's legit. Because right. there's too much of a history here. There's too many great people who have worn my, my letters, who have worn yours, when yours is a Delta, worn yours as an AKA, that, that can't be tainted by this. Right. It's bad. It's bad to have some of these things. Especially when there's so much good done. The the amount of networking that I've been able to do. The amount of bonds I've been able to do. These letters got me my first AP award. Wow. Wow. Ryan Howard played for the Phillies. Legendary player. He opened up a baseball academy for black and brown youth six years ago. Ryan Howard's a member of Phi Beta Sigma. And he wasn't in a hurry to talk to a lot of people that day. So I did what any enterprising young reporter would do who has a connection. <laughs> I put my Sigma lanyard on and I put my ID on that one instead of on the regular one. And I strolled up. He took one look at me and walked right on over, dapped me up and said, what, what's good with your frat? And yeah. we start just kicking Amazing. back and forth. It went from him giving short one word answers to we are sitting there trading baseball stories. Wow. I got a whole story out of him. He gives me a heads up on stuff about what he was going to do with his organization. He's thinking of maybe this will be it. I knew this months out. And it's like he gave he gave that up because it's like, look, we fam. But it's like he looked out for me because he saw black man wearing his letters in a place that he don't see a lot of us. And he knew I was going to tell the story correctly. And I wanted right. to get inside on him. And it helps that we were part of the same org. Yeah, That's what this is. Yes. I don't like to – I'll never put a, just a sugarcoat everything. But that's what this is. So if people don't get it, you're more than welcome to ask. That's always – I'll never have a problem at least as well as much info as I can give you. I, I, I'll never have a problem helping people understand certain things because this means a ton to me. I, 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 I don't run from that. This is as much of my identity 
as me being a reporter, as me being an anchor, as me being black. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. And I I wouldn't change any of this experience. None of it. You said your your mom became a member in the 60s, right? Um, 19, so 1966. I'm, that's, a lot was going on in 1966, you know. Right. So I'm sure she has a lot of, of stories. Has she shared anything about any pioneers that she came up with or any participation in any movements back then? One of her sorority sisters from that chapter is Wilma Rudolph. Wow. Wow. Wilma, Wilma Rudolph crossed, I think, the year before she did in 65. She's told me about how the because this is Nashville, Tennessee in the mid 1960s. Yeah. Her stories about how a lot of cases being in those organizations were the only ones you could get into and how it became a way of networking for teachers. That's why a lot of people in particular schools gravitated toward particular organizations because they knew if you're going to go into some of these places, she goes back to Detroit to teach or some people go to other places. This is one way in. It's oftentimes it was one way in because a lot of the latent racism and there had to be it had to be almost like you had to team up. You had to posse up and show up there. Create your own pipeline. You had to create your own pipeline. It's like she plus she has all these stories about when Muhammad Ali would come down and hang out there because he was dating. He was dating one of the girls who in her in her chapter and and, and the, (laughs) the rallies and everything else. She still has this amazing story of the day that. JFK is shot. That's also why I'm so grateful that my mom is still here to tell right. these stories. We need to bring her on to yeah. Bridge and Philly. I always love running into older Greeks because it's not just to trade the the party stories and everything else. It's just to hear what it was like yeah. for them mm-hmm. and, and how they pledged and how they went through and how it was rough. It, it was it was it was rough, and she said that's what made her. And they were there was always a respect for the struggle because we knew what it was like on the outside. It was kind of a utopia in a way of of being at Tennessee State. And getting there helped me understand it. It gives me a greater understanding of it. Y'all, anybody who knows me knows I'm a a history buff, history nerd. I don't hesitate to bring that out when I'm on air and everything else. I get a lot of that from her because she's the main one. It's like, this is what we went through. And in some cases, we went through this hoping that you wouldn't have to go through the same thing or your grandkids wouldn't have to go through the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's... I think that's part of it for me. The mid '90s stuff that was going on there—it was—it was a different yeah. vibe. But everybody has a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody has a different path, and I don't think people quite understand. Black people in America are so diverse. Yes, we're so dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I've really grown to love about being here on KYW where I ain't worked in a place where I could count on two hands how many black people we got in, the, in one room. Yeah, yeah, I've often been the only I, one. That's the thing. And each one of us in this room has a different experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And we all bring each, it to the table. We right. all have our thing. And being Greeks is one way that we can find a bond. Jay Scott Smith, ladies and gentlemen, KYW News Radio's anchor and host of the John Cast. By the way, congrats yes, on the relaunch, the rebranding of the John Cast. Love it, awesome. Yes, indeed. You can find it, of course, on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Just about wherever you get your podcast. It's me, Sabrina Boyd, circa Brian Seltzer. Plus, I am always on Philadelphia's Afternoon News Monday through Friday afternoon, starting at three o'clock here on KYW News Radio, one hundred three nine FM and ten sixty AM. <laughs> Well, Philadelphia's Greek life is alive and well and was featured on Visit Philly's website in a pretty unique way. Here with us now is Rachel Ferguson of Visit Philly. Hi, Rachel. Oh, hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. Nice of you to be here with us. Well, let's talk a little bit about Philly's active Black Greek life. We've been talking about that today. How active is it? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I just think that members of the Divine Nine and the National Panhellenic Council are just wonderful. They work hard, play hard. There's more than two million members. Um, so we are so proud of the prominent Philadelphians that, you know, our members of fraternities and sororities, we love everything that we have to offer in greater Philadelphia, the history, the culture, the um you know, the Kappa's uh, headquarters is based here in Philadelphia. There's a lot of history surrounding fraternities and sororities in Philadelphia. Um, and so we're happy that so many members call it home. Now, you were recently invited to the National Panhellenic Councils. Uh, they had a recent meeting or a gathering. Tell us about that and how you were involved. Oh, well, it was so 
nice. Um, because of our Visit Philadelphia Black Greek Edition, which um, consisted of a video series and itineraries where prominent Philadelphians participated, and they basically curated their own um, what Philadelphia means to them. So the different shops and boutiques and museums and their favorite restaurants. And because that received such a wonderful response, I then was invited to provide a welcome to their members during this virtual conference that would have taken place in Philadelphia. So that was such an honor to showcase some of those videos um, and you know, looking for new ways that we're able to highlight everything that Philadelphia has to offer. We know that the participants um, in these videos and itineraries, they were customized. Um, the videos were shot in locations around the city that are significant in Black and NPHC communities. Um, and we're glad that you don't have to tr just trust Visit Philadelphia. These members are ambassadors to our city. They are, you know, extending a personal invitation to their fraternity brothers, their sorority sisters to come visit, to come reconnect and experience everything that Philadelphia has to offer. Why did you decide to highlight uh, the organizations in that way on the website? I, I thought the videos are great. I, I thought uh, the idea of having them. Uh, give an idea of what they like to do and the the, the black uh, businesses that they like to frequent. I thought it was great to marry those two together. Well, for us, we know that black history and culture have long been a part of the Philadelphia experience and a great reason for travelers to visit the region. It was here that activist Octavius Cattle fought for voting rights and where music legends Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff develop the sound of Philadelphia. And it also takes a place where two historically black colleges and universities thrive. So, you know, we all like to receive an invitation. I know I do. And when it's personal and by folks that you trust, you like to party with, you like to work with that, um, you know, have a common goal and care about the same causes, it just makes sense. And we were just so happy that folks like Anya Lachelle from um, Philly Live on NBC and uh, Mr. Richard Snow um, and so many city council members agreed to participate. And folks, you know, called us up when they heard about it and said, yeah, I love this. This is the first time, you know, a destination has decided to do this. Well, it was just a it was just beautiful synergy. And I'm so happy that this has been a success and it's a just beautiful way to promote our region. So let's talk about some of those prominent Philadelphia members. You know, we, we are happy um, that, you know, Honorable Blondell Reynolds Brown, uh, who's at Delta, um, and Honorable Sherelle Parker, and um, like I mentioned, Anya and, and, and Tumar Alexander and so many folks, um, you have to check out their videos. The Flyers just honored Anya Lachelle and different um, members of sororities during Black History Month, and they, they played the videos as well. So this is truly a united effort, and you have to continue to go on our website, visitphilly.com, because we have other things in the work that you will definitely want to be a part of. Absolutely. One of the things I love about this list, though, is that it points out people who you may not have realized were associated with a black fraternity or sorority. And that's oftentimes how it is. Like even in history, some people don't know that Coretta Scott King, she was an AKA. Um, Rosa Parks was an AKA. Michelle Obama. I like about this initiative and it's something that's, you know, in all serious, it's extremely important that so many black owned businesses were highlighted. We know that when we shine a spotlight on these businesses, it's truly a reflection of our city. It's a way um, with everything that has taken place with the pandemic to make sure we are properly supporting these businesses. We're putting you know, our, our, our dollars where it counts. 
we're um, making sure we're referring a friend and we're really making sure that we it's basically our turn to tourists. It's our turn to make sure we put our money into these establishments so that they can succeed or rebound and they have that proper support. And so many of the people that participated in this series, um, they mentioned not only um, places like the African-American Museum in Philadelphia, but they mentioned their favorite restaurants that are Black-owned or their favorite retailers. Um, and so it's it's supporting a lot of people in our region and extremely important. Right. And of course, you know, Black Greek organizations, we, we roll deep. When we roll, we roll. And Philadelphia is, you know, a major attractive city to have so many different um, uh, events uh, so I can imagine what, you know, we'll, you know, a lot of us will pack up and come right to Philly and hold our conventions or events. I remember back in the day, this was the place for the picnic yes. way back in the day. <laughs> but you're right. And we have so many events and um, especially things that are coming up in the summer. We know that there's the um, Juneteenth uh, parade and festival, um, which is a wonderful event. We know that um, Welcome America, you know, last year we embarked on Freedom to Liberty, where we teamed up uh, Visit Philadelphia, the African-American Museum in Philadelphia, and Welcome America to make sure that we were telling a, 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 an inclusive story, that we were really saying, what does freedom and liberty mean when you're talking about Philadelphia, the birthplace of our nation and making sure that you're telling those stories. And for the first time, the city's, you know, festival was extended to start on Juneteenth. And so we want people to come to our region to participate. Um, you have gospel on independence and you have so many events. Um, even Waterworks has a new exhibit entitled Pool, and it talks about social justice and how does water, you know, um, become a play when you're talking about civil rights and the history and from swimming to drinking water. And there's just so much rich history and fun and the culinary scene and things like the Roots Picnic. So Philadelphia is the place to be and especially this summer. Awesome. I'm curious, what's what's your favorite on the list, Rachel? There's so many restaurants that, you know, we love to visit and it's it's special because whether it's um, a James Beard nominated chef, whether it's, you know, the Bynum brothers that have so much history in Philly and legacy. Um, so I love it all. She likes to eat. And I'm <laughs> fortunate enough to um, live in an area that there's so much diversity and our culinary scene is world-class amazing awesome all right rachel ferguson visit philly thank you so much for joining us on bridging philly yes thank you for having me this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Tuskegee Airmen were a group of mostly black military fighter and bomber pilots who fought in World War II. With Jim Crow laws alive and well, their fight was both on and off the field of combat. Sharaday Howard spotlights Melvin Payne, president of the Greater Philadelphia chapter of Tuskegee Airmen, Inc. Melvin Payne has led the Greater Philadelphia chapter of Tuskegee Airmen, Inc. as president for over a decade. Payne tells the stories of the airmen not just to keep their memories alive as black history, but as American history. And he joins us here today. So you've been the president of this organization in Philadelphia for how long? I started in 2017 as president of the chapter, but I've been involved with the Greater Philadelphia Chapter Tuskegee Airmen for 15 years. So 15 years you've been upholding the memory of the Tuskegee Airmen and the very unique position they hold in American history. 
and right here in Philadelphia. And every year we're losing someone else who is integral to that memory. Can you tell us about how you've been keeping uh, not just the memory, but the historical poignance of the Tuskegee Airmen alive? Yeah, the mission is threefold. One is to sustain the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. The second is scholarships. And the third is youth programs. As far as the legacy goes, we do presentations like this, both with original Tuskegee Airmen um, and other chapter members. We have five originals that are still living. The youngest is 95. The oldest is 102, will be 103 in May 14th of this year. We also created scholarships. So scholarships are done locally in the names of the men and women who served at Tuskegee from the Philadelphia chapter. So we have the aviators and the pilots. So we do have a scholarship for them. But there were many other people that served. So we have a medical scholarship that honors Miss Alma Bailey, who was a cadet nurse. We have a mechanical scholarship that honors Henry Moore and the mechanics that served at Tuskegee. We also have a scholarship that's education and administration. One of the pilots, Dr. Eugene Richardson, before he finally retired, became a school principal. So we honor his legacy. And then we have scholarships um, for administration and operation. And we have one special scholarship that we do with Delaware State University. Delaware State University was one of the original black pilot training locations. So we have an affiliation with them. We have a scholarship in the name of Roscoe Coach Draper, who was a flight instructor for Tuskegee. He's the gentleman that's 102 years old. So we give a leadership scholarship to a student in their aviation program, which they still have. Um, That scholarship is $3,500. So let's go back to exactly what the Tuskegee Airmen, who they were and why they were so important. I think a lot of people immediately associate them with, okay, they flew some planes during World War II. It's a lot bigger than that. It's a lot deeper than that. Yes, it's much deeper than that. First of all, the Tuskegee Airmen had to fight and sue the Army Air Corps for the right to even fly. No one wanted them to fly. And the Army did a uh, study that said, Black men didn't have the dexterity, didn't have the intelligence, didn't stick to what they were to do. So these men fought and sued the government. And the Tuskegee Airmen was created as an experiment. It was just a test because they wanted to prove that these men and women couldn't do the job. So what happened while they were there in Tuskegee, Alabama, where they had the program. That's how the Tuskegee name came from Tuskegee, Alabama and Moton Field, where they trained. While they were training, President Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, came to Tuskegee because Tuskegee was working on medicines, penicillin and things for her husband, you know, her husband who was in a wheelchair. And while she was there at Tuskegee University, she saw these people flying airplanes. And she said, boy, I want to go over and see what they're doing. So she goes over. You can imagine this is in 1941, deep south, Tuskegee, Alabama. If you're not, if you have not been to Tuskegee, Alabama, you should even go see it now. And it's very remote even today. Um, and she says, I want to go fly with them. So you can imagine the, the FBI who's traveling with her said, you're going to get in a plane with these black men who everyone said doesn't have the dexterity, the willpower, anything. And she says, yes, I'm going to fly with one. So she flew with Alfred Anderson, Chief Alfred Anderson, and actually grew up in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Mrs. Roosevelt, she went back to her husband and said, you know, we need to make sure these people have an opportunity to train to be pilots because I flew with them and they can fly just as well as everyone else. So that's how Tuskegee Molten Field was built up into a training place solely for black American pilots. Um, The Institute though included men, women, blacks and whites. So let's talk about that. A lot of people have all these preconceptions of what Tuskegee Airmen and who they are and what they are and what they did. We covered that. Now let's talk about the fact that it included women as well. So it included, it included pilots, it included the mechanics, it included so many other people. Can you tell me why that was so important to recognize? 
Well, it's important to recognize because for every pilot that gets trained, you need 12 support people. So when you start looking at what happened at Tuskegee, there were 14, 15,000 people that participated at Tuskegee from 1941 to 1949. You have to add cooks. You have to add medical people. You have to have administrative people. You had to have flight instructors. So you, you had mechanics. So you had all of these different type of people. In those jobs, there were also women. Uh, most people don't no, but women actually flew planes in World War II, both for Tuskegee, but also for the Army Air Corps, because they had to move the planes from the factory to the airfields. So that were they were women pilots that did that. You also had the medical people. The person that we are going to honor at our scholarship gala, Miss Alma Bailey, was a cadet nurse during that time. And she helped treat the men that returned from war um, with psychological things. So you have a wide variety of persons who had to do the administration, the project management, so they were all included. Um, what we've done in Philadelphia, though, we've identified them and we're promoting them more so that people know that it was a, a totally self-contained unit of people. And I mentioned whites. 1941, they were not going to let a black man lead a group of individuals. So you had to have white leaders at the time. Benjamin O. Davis, who was black, but he was the first to be able to lead black troops, black pilots. And here in Philadelphia, there's a unique way in which we honor these Tuskegee Airmen. So each year at the scholarship event, we pick one of the Tuskegee Airmen or women and we honor them at the legacy of that scholarship event. So it's a legacy honoree and then the scholarship honorees. But the scholarships are named for the people who served from Philadelphia. So when a student receive a scholarship from our organization, they are literally standing on the shoulders of someone who was heroic in history, someone who changed the way the armed forces were desegregated. If it wasn't for the Tuskegee Airmen, segregation would have been still prevalent in the armed forces. So the Tuskegee Airmen and how uh, that transition from modern uh, way in which people saw race and gender in the armed forces to how they do now, they played an integral role. Can you talk about that? Yes. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, people said they couldn't do it. So what they did is they actually proved that they could do it. But then no one wanted them to go fly, even in Europe during World War II. So here we have this highly trained, skilled individuals led by Benjamin O. Davis, who was trained at West Point. And he figured that he would go to West Point because if he went to West Point, they would have to let him fly. So he was one of the first five persons that trained at Tuskegee. And then he led the men who flew in Europe and in Africa. In the beginning, they didn't want Tuskegee Airmen to fly at all. But then they said, OK, well, we'll give him an opportunity to take care of this guy, Rommel, who is has this big tank corps in northern Africa. And Tuskegee Airmen took care of that. They took care of that. They stopped Rommel and they didn't give them an opportunity to fly in Europe until they had this major crisis. What used to happen is they would go and do bomb raid B-25 airplanes. The B-25 bombers were very slow. So the Germans who had more superior airplanes, fighter airplanes, would come and shoot them out of the air. Each bomber had 10 crew members. on. One day during the war, 60 bombers got shot down. So you can imagine you're losing 600 people. So our Army leaders said, well, you know, maybe we should try something else. Let's give these guys an opportunity. So they gave the Tuskegee Airmen an opportunity to fly. And they still have the record. The fewest number of bombers ever lost in any war was because of the Tuskegee Airmen. And the reason for it is that Benjamin O. Davis told the men, you will stick with the bombers no matter what, even if the Germans fly in and they try to get you to peel off and they would do that 
flies them in, gets you to peel off, they come in and shoot the bombers. So the Tuskegee Airmen stuck with the bombers, and that's why they had the fewest ever taken down. So it wasn't just about perspective and the role that the airmen played, but it was also about strategy. They changed kind of how air warfare was fought. Yes, they did. And it was because of Benjamin O. Davis. Benjamin O. Davis told them that if they did not stick to the plan, then he would have them court-martialed. So they all stuck to the plan. One of the things that people don't realize also about the Tuskegee Airmen, they didn't just volunteer. They had to test. They volunteered and then they had to test to get in. They had to be accepted to get in. So these are men and women who went and tested to get in for a country that didn't want them to fight for them and treated them horribly even after the war. But they fought. And I talked to them because I'm blessed to be able to walk around with living history. And they tell us that, look, this is my country also. So I fought for my country, not just your country. So, Melvin, it sounds like part of your mission, part of the organization's mission is keeping the legacy alive, right? Uh, What is the importance of that and educating the next generation on this history, especially as, you know, these history makers are passing on? So one of the things that we understand is that a culture dies unless you share or what has happened in the past. So we have a mantra that says people have a dream. They need to have a desire. You need to have the discipline to make that desire work and the determination to stand for whatever you have charged to do. Think about these people. These people fought not only to become part of the Army Air Corps, but they fought racism at the same time. They were fighting two battles at the same time. And they, if you get to talk to them, as I do all the time, they are humble people. And they said, well, you were heroes. And they say, no, we were just doing our job. We were doing our job to save the country. So it's important that young people know, no matter what you have to confront in your life, you can make it if you have the determination, desire, and the discipline. So they need to understand that there are people still living who can show you that they've been through more than we're facing today. And they still achieved. They all went on to other careers. Dr. Richardson became a principal. Others became real estate magnets. They became businessmen, lawyers. So they showed people that even when fighting, you continue and you'll achieve. I do have a question, um, Mr. Payne, um, because, of course, the Jim Crow laws were still in effect. And you're talking about the fight that these men and women were fighting uh, to gain respect as well as fighting. I'm wondering. How long did it take for the men to gain the respect when they entered that uh, civil pilots program? How long did it take for them to gain the respect of their fellow peers who pretty much didn't want them there? Well, when you talk about fellow peers, there are two, two groups of fellow peers. There are the fellow peers who were the other black pilots who gain, you gain respect with because they knew that you, were the, you had their uh, back when you were fighting. Then there were the peers who were the whites who didn't want you there. And they didn't even have that respect from many of them, even after the war was over. Um, There were stories where they talk about after the war, when they were riding back in the train, they made the black heroes sit right behind the engine because that's where all the soot and smoke and all. And they gave the German captives better seats than them. The other thing that happened for them is when the war was over, Roscoe Draper, the gentleman I talked to, was 102, taught the Tuskegee Airmen how to fly. And all of the pilots who flew could not get a job in the United States as a pilot. No one wanted to hire them. Now, these are the considered the best pilots in the world at that time, and no one would hire them. So the respect still lingers on in some respects today. Because some people just can't get over the fact that we blacks as a race can achieve, but we do fight against that. And this is why we keep the legacy, the scholarships and the momentum going, because our young people need to know that inherently in them is success. So don't let anyone put a wall up or fight against you. 
Just to tie this into uh, recent current events, you know, we are on the brink of possibly having the first black female U.S. Supreme Court justice. And there have been a lot of conversations around, is there a a black female that's qualified enough for this job? Um, And it's just interesting how these events, you know, this was how many years ago, but this is repeating itself even in 2022. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're always going to be faced with the fact that we're not as good as the next person. Um, and that's only because people look at the color of your skin. And Dr. Richardson talks about a, a study that he he read, and he's, he's done this in some of the presentations. He said, none of us are any different from the other. The only reason that our skin has different colors is because the distance that you lived from the equator. Melanomin is put there to help block the sun and continue. So the further you move away from the sun, the less melanomin you need in your body. So your skin gets lighter and lighter. If you turned around and took someone from Iceland and put them in Kenya right on the equator, over time their skin would get as dark as the persons in Kenya. So it's only because of where you live and it's become and it's gone through your generations. So no one's different. When you look at it, when you bleed, we all bleed red. When you get sick, we all get sick. You know, it says you are people and that's what we need to understand. People are people and as Martin Luther King said, it's for our character and knowledge, not the color of our skin. We have a book that was written in collaboration with Westchester University. It's called Tuskegee in Philadelphia. This is about the men and the women who served from the greater Philadelphia area. Um, Takes some of them and talks about them as a child through what they did in the war and what they did afterwards. So for anyone that that purchases that book from our website, which is www.taiphila.org, we will give them a signed copy by the author. And because we're honoring Miss Alma Bailey, they will also receive a picture of Miss Alma Bailey. Thank you so much for joining us. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia. And since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. We've been talking about Black history and the importance of documenting it and sharing those stories. Our Changemaker this week is bridging communities by doing exactly that. I'm so excited to highlight Dr. Sheena Howard. She's an author, producer, and professor. Her latest project in partnership with Temple University's Blocks and Archives is going to help kids across Philadelphia learn about Black leaders who have shaped our city. Here's Dr. Sheena Howard on Bridging Philly. So this week we're talking about Black Lives Always Matter. This is one of your latest projects, right? So tell us about first how and when this idea came to fruition. So Black Lives Always Matter entails 14 profile pieces of um, historical Black leaders, most of whom lived in the city of Philadelphia, um, but W.E.B. Du Bois is featured in the book because he did the um, famous Philadelphia uh, Negro study. And um, it features their lives and their impact on the city of Philadelphia. Black Lives Always Mattered came to me through Eric Battle, who was the creative director on the project. And he asked me if I would be interested in, you know, writing the book. And it was funded through a Pew Research grant in the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American um, Library at Temple University. And when he asked me, of course, it was an easy yes, because this is totally on brand for me, documenting African-American history, doing it from 
um, you know, a research and academic standpoint through the, you know, through, through the medium of comics. So I was all on board, super excited to do it. And so when we got started, this project has been in the works for a few years. Yeah, because it took me it took me like a year to write it. Yeah. And I was the sole writer in there. It's about 140, 150 pages. And you're the sole writer. That's a pretty big role there. Yes, yes. But, you know, um, the amazing thing about it was that there's a lot of um, historical documents in the Charles Bloxon Library that um, were provided to me. Um, and so they provided the research to me. And so it was just a matter of me shift, sifting through the research and crafting these stories. And I had about 10 or 11 pages for each person that is featured in the book. So it was just, you know, crafting the elements of the story um, in, in sort of this, this narrow 10 to 11 page window. You know, the Bloxon Collection is really a gem for this city, for especially for Temple University. Um, and a lot yeah. of people, you know, forget about its existence. So yes. for those who don't know, tell us what your experience has been with the Bloxon Collection. So, yeah, and, and, you know, the beautiful thing about writing this book is I learned so much about my city, the city of Philadelphia. Not only did I learn that the Bloxon Collection even existed, I got to go there and see all the artifacts they have, um, the book collection, just just the just black history all in this one spot. I also got to learn the meaning of some of the street names that we have, like Cecil B. Moore and the meaning of some of these murals that we see around the city of Marion Anderson and a, a real something really cool that that I learned when, when writing this. Um, I was I was doing the research for Marian Anderson, who who was a performer, right? I think she's the first African American performer to perform in the White House, right? Opera singer. It turns out that like I found out that she was buried in Eden Cemetery, which is like five to ten minutes outside Philadelphia. And Eden Cemetery is a historical African American cemetery, like one of the only places where we could be buried um, in the city of Philadelphia. And I had no idea. And the beautiful thing about this is once I learned about this cemetery, I found out while I was writing this, this, this piece on Marion Anderson, that um, my mother's grandmother is buried there. And my mother had always talked to me about her grandmother. So I felt like I knew her. I never met her, but I felt like I knew her. And I was able to locate where my um, great grandmother was buried. I took my mom there. I took my mom to the cemetery. When you drive into the cemetery, you see Marian Anderson has a big, a big thing in there um, for where she was buried. And it turns out that I then I recently learned a, a few weeks ago that my other set of great grandparents are buried in the cemetery as well. So, you know, just the importance. This book is important because it's just Black history through and through with a focus on the city of Philadelphia. And look what I learned. So I can imagine that other people reading this book will learn some important things, maybe about their own family history, but certainly about the history of Philadelphia. What a full circle moment for you. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to share about like this project, you know, taking off during Black History Month and, and the timing and setting that we are in now? Yeah, you know, I think at least from the writing perspective and knowing these people's stories, it really empowered me. You know, in Philadelphia, especially as a creator, you know, you hear people say things you like you have to leave Philly in order to make it or, you know, Philly's not going to put you on unless another city puts you on first. And just seeing these people who are in the city of Philadelphia making such major impact during a time where it was a lot tougher than it is now in terms of access and in terms of, you know, not had, they don't have tools like social media, right? They, everything was about hustle and, and it was just really inspiring. And the book was written for the Philadelphia public school system. So um, writing it in a way um, that would be accessible to, you know, to like a high school student or, or, or even a younger student was a process that I appreciated in writing the book. You know, just thinking about young people, having them on the forefront of my mind um, when I was when I was writing these entries. So I tried to write the stories in a way that will be will be inspiring to the youth. And I want you every every story that I that I wrote, I'm like, I want a youth to read this and feel like they could do whatever they want to do in life right? Because these people, you know, we start 
from the beginning of, of each of these people's um, lives. Like they didn't have it easy. None of, none of them had, had it easy, right? They, they, they started from very little and made such major impact right here in the city of Philadelphia and made impact beyond the city of Philadelphia. And I really just want people to be inspired by these real life people, right? These are, these are real life superheroes. Um, you know, uh, Julian Abel's in the book who was a photographer in the city of Philadelphia, a self-taught photographer, right? Um, you know, no, no formal training. So those types of people are, are, you know, I just really want people to understand, um, or, or just be inspired by the trajectory of these people's career. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Sheena Howard and the Black Lives Always Mattered book or some of her other projects, you can follow her on social media. She's very active on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Sheena Howard. You can also find more information on our website, kywnewsradio.com. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you know a changemaker we should highlight next, please reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>